and I'm fired up today. It's another edition of the Beyond the Fold podcast. So first of all, I'm your host, Kyle Lamb. Thank you for listening today. I think this is a really, really good show. It's a, an information-packed edition. I think you're going to like this episode because we have a lot to talk about. A couple things that I've been discussing and researching on Twitter. Uh, the Twitter machine at KYLAM8. You've seen me touch on this the last week or two. Two issues that are near and dear to my heart today on this episode of Beyond the Fold. Number one, we're going to look at excess deaths. I'm going to try to derail a bad faith argument made by the media and the public at large, because they are not telling you the whole truth about excess deaths. And to do this, I took a different approach than maybe you have seen from other people on Twitter. Because the easy approach, and I'm not saying it's wrong, but the easy approach is to take CDC five-year average, which is the lower bound threshold, as they call it, on the CDC website. Or you could look at the higher upper bound threshold, which I think is a little bit better approach in that it is the two times standard deviation of the five-year average. And why I don't like the five-year average is because it does not account for population controls. So what I did is take a little bit different approach, and I'll tell you about that here in a minute. But I decided to go in a different direction. And I, I don't like the CDC method, and I think this is a little better. So we'll talk about that. And also later in the show, the other topic that I really have been working hard to debunk, the other bad faith argument made in the media is whether or not mitigation strategies killed the flu both in the Southern Hemisphere during the summer, which is their winter, and whether it also killed the flu prematurely here in the United States back in late February and early to mid-March. That is another topic that I'm going to discuss later in the show. These are, as I said, two topics that I really particularly care about because they are important to understand how the virus is behaving and what strategies we have for stopping or slowing down the virus. And hint, this is the Reader's Digest version. There aren't any. But we will talk about that. The other big thing that I'm really excited about today, and I hope you will stick around for the entire show. If you weren't planning to already, this is a really good reason to. We have Thomas Renz, who is the lead attorney for the federal lawsuit that is going on in the state of Ohio, the Northern District Federal Court in the state of Ohio. He is affiliated with OhioStandsUp.org. He is going to join us here a little bit later, and we'll talk to him not only about the strategy of this case and why it's important for Ohioans, but many of you that are listening obviously do not have a direct vested interest in this case in that it doesn't impact you currently, right? It, and I understand that what's going on in Ohio, it's not going to ease your pain. Even this case wins. It may not stop the mask mandate in your county or your juris jurisdiction. It may not get your business open quicker, but it could help you. And Mr. Renz is here today. We're going to discuss that, and he will explain why a precedent in a federal court in Ohio could very much have a prolonged, long-lasting, positive impact for other cases, not only in the region, but around the country. So stick with me on this. I promise there is some optimism here. He's a really good interview. You're going to enjoy what he has to say. But this case in Ohio 
is not just about what's happening in Ohio. It really could have a positive impact across the country. So Thomas Renz coming up here in a few minutes. We will discuss that. First, the issue that is near and dear to my heart right now, excess deaths. As I said, there isn't anything wrong with using the CDC numbers, but I will tell you, when you look at the average threshold of the CDC and what excess is, is just the number of deaths occurring in a week or a month or a year in a given jurisdiction above what the CDC is the, says is the average. And there's nothing wrong with using the average except that if you use a five-year average unadjusted for population, you're actually going to set an unrealistically throw, uh, unrealistically low threshold because the population is growing every year. For instance, the 2018 census has the U.S. population around 328 million. But the projections through the CDC Wonder Database project about 334 million as of this year. So it's grown about 6 million in two years. And so when you look at the five-year average, which is encompassing 2019, 18, 17, 16, and 15, obviously you're going to have a big difference in population because if the 2015 population is being included in the five-year average, the number of deaths that were incur uh, occurring back in 15 are not going to capture a realistic expectation or a threshold for 2020. So you have to adjust for population. Now, they have a second threshold to look at excess deaths, which is the, the upper bound threshold, which is really just two times standard deviation of that five-year average. Now, I think that is a little bit better way to look at it. It's not perfect, but it's better than using the five-year average because I think it, it sets the bar a little bit higher for what kind of population uh, mortality should be expected for this year. But that has been done to death, and people have been looking at this, and there is an inherent flaw in looking at excess deaths right now because one of the theories to COVID-19 is that it's not just killing healthy people. It's, it's obviously actually mostly not killing healthy people. And I'm not saying there's nobody healthy dying from COVID, but it's mostly killing people that are later in life and closer to death. If, if you look at the average, for instance, you, you know, some people will say, well, it's killing 80 year olds. But if you look at an actuarial table, an 80 year old still has seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years left to live on average. Well, that is technically true, but the problem with that answer is that that is just an average. So if an 80-year-old has an average of 10 years of life left, well, COVID-19 isn't coming and killing the average 80-year-old. COVID-19 is, is killing the 80-year-old that is on the low side of that average, the, the one that probably has one, maybe two years left to live because they have health issues that are starting to take their toll and it's starting to encumber their body, and their health is rapidly deteriorating, that is the person that COVID-19 is targeting right now. And when you look at the big ballpark of excess deaths, that doesn't take that into account. It just looks at the big picture. What I wanted to do is I wanted to get a more detailed, specific approach to this. And I wanted to take into account that 
the the average years of life. But what I wanted was something that was more in tune with what's really expected of people dying more recently or in, in a shorter period of time or a shorter window. So I took the 2020 population estimates, courtesy of the CDC Wonder Database, and I compared them with an actuarial table from the Social Security Administration, which conveniently has the probability of a person dying by age and gender within one year. And that is a perfect fit for what I wanted to see because I wanted to know how many people should be expected to die in the year 2020. So I took ages zero all the way to 100 for male and female population in the United States, courtesy of the CDC. And then I used the probability of dying within one year in the actuarial table for male and female by every age up to 100. And I just came up with an expected number of deaths. And you wind up getting about 300 and, what was it, 307, 307 million, I think it was off the top of my head. I can't remember the exact number, but it was just over, or it was just over 3 million, I'm sorry, just over 3 million uh, and 70,000, something like that. So then when you take that and then you compare the actual deaths occurring in the United States, and I, I did the cutoff because the CDC keeps track of provisional deaths. And basically what that means is anything that is submitted to the National Vital Statistics Service, there is a lag, especially the last three to four weeks, but I wanted to be a little bit more thorough and allow for more time to lag. So I actually cut, cut it off at six weeks, ending August 1st. So any provisional deaths reported in the U.S. up to August 1st in the United States, that's 31 calendar weeks. I just extrapolated those deaths out to 52 weeks, and then I compared the 52-week average, what would be expected for a full year, I compared it to our baseline. What would be expected for a total number of deaths for each age category as stratified by the CDC when you add up all of those probabilities by age, right? When I throw them all together into categories, how many people should be expected to die? I compared that to how many people are on pace to die in 2020. What I found was about 160,000 deaths higher than are expected by the actuarial table. So when you look at that by age and break it down, then you find out, well, guess what? What we have been saying all along, at least I've been saying, and many of the other researchers out there, some people affiliated with rationalground.com and other independent researchers that are saying, hey, wait a minute. There are undoubtedly deaths happening because of COVID-19, but it is not as bad as it's being made out to be. The official number of deaths, which is now over 200,000, that's not a real number. 200,000 people may have died with COVID-19, but 200,000 people in this country did not die from COVID-19. And when I do the probability of dying by age and gender, and then I throw them and aggregate them into groups, 160,000 is the expected excess number over the, the expected total. And even more so, we compare it by age group and we find out 85 and over COVID-19 deaths for the year is expected to be about three times higher 
than the actual excess total. That means if there were 23,000 excess deaths, 85 and over, over 80,000 COVID deaths, <laughs> that means a good 50-some thousand of COVID deaths didn't actually die from COVID-19. And we see that for the 65 to 74, 75 to 84, and 85 and over age groups. We see those are being drastically overcounted. The younger age groups, meanwhile, like 15 to 24, 25 to 34, etc., we're finding the opposite is happening. And that means that the excess deaths are actually higher than the COVID-19 associated deaths. And the reason for that is the inadvertent deaths caused from direct and indirect results of the lockdown and stay-at-home orders. We know in the 15 to 24 category, we have reports all across the country about suicides being higher than normal. We know about extra drug overdoses. We know about cancer and heart screenings that were delayed because of uh, elective procedures being shut down, and in some cases, people afraid to go to the hospital for medical care. All of those factors are creating higher number of deaths in the young and medium adult categories. So we're seeing, and, and probably some of the older folks too, by the way, lockdowns could have created more deaths in the older numbers and the older age groups. So it's not just the younger people that are affected by the lockdowns. But what we find out is out of those 160,000, at least 30,000 were definitely not COVID-19 deaths and probably even more of those. So when you put it all together, COVID-19 is on pace for about 265,000 deaths this year and less than 130,000 of them appear to be deaths that were actually from COVID-19. Now, some of them were deaths that maybe COVID-19 caused earlier but because they were unhealthy, they were likely to die later this year anyway. And so the total deaths aren't as high as maybe they would be because these are people that would have died later in the year. Maybe some of the ones that got COVID-19 back in April, they might have died this November or December. But COVID came along and just got to them earlier. Okay, And that's what's happening. The pull forward deaths, as we call them. So that's an interesting approach. I'm very, like you may recall, if you follow me on Twitter, a few weeks back, a, a couple months back, I was saying I thought best estimate based on the ethical skeptic, based on his lockdown research, I thought maybe 50 to 75% of the official deaths were actually caused from COVID-19. And now I did a completely different method, different approach, and I found about 50%, just over 50% probably being from COVID-19. So I feel really good about this estimation. Again, don't do us a disservice. Don't call, don't say it's a hoax because of this, okay? Because there's still 100,000 people dying in the United States because of COVID this year. That's still not an insignificant number. It's closer to the flu than the den deniers would like to admit, but it's still not an insignificant number. So don't call it a hoax. And I, I'm not saying that there aren't elements of a hoax here in the way this is being spun for additional control, there, there are financial elements that makes this a hoax. There are political elements. There are certainly elements of a hoax here. But overall, COVID is real. And by calling it a hoax, I think it does us, does us all a disservice. So try to avoid using that term. Even though I get what you're saying, it, it kind of does us a disservice. So 
COVID is real, but the the number that they throw around, the 200,000 number or 250,000 excess deaths, all those numbers, those are not real numbers. When all is said and done, I think when we have time to lay back and look at the end, uh, analyze all of the deaths when they're all finalized, then we're going to find out this is probably only half as deadly as it's being made out to be. And to make matters worse, with all the mitigation strategies, the, the stay-at-home orders and lockdowns, we probably created so many more deaths than we actually saved by implementing them in the first place. And that really is the tragedy here, and we will have to account for that for a long, long time. Thomas Renz coming up here on Beyond the Fold Podcast. So I am here now with attorney Thomas Renz, and he is the lead attorney on a federal lawsuit in Ohio, which we will talk about here in just a minute. He is also one of the founders of OhioStandsUp.org. Mr. Renz, it is a pleasure to have you on the show today. Pleased to be here, Kyle. Thanks for having me. So let's start with Ohio Stands Up. Uh, when did this come about, the, the organization, and, and what led to it, it getting it off the ground, and, and, uh, and what are some of the goals and visions for this? Well, so when this whole lawsuit started and my uh, clients came to me, you know, they had already done a ton of work. They had all these different groups and all these different people that they'd been working with to really develop uh, kind of a, a political movement, if you will, to try and stop this and figure out what we could do about this lockdown and all of this non unconstitutional nonsense. So they came to me and they said, you know, we're just normal people. We've gotten together with others on Facebook and this and that and the other, and we want to do something. So what can we do? And they'd struggled because I think a lot of attorneys were kind of nervous about taking the case. I was a little nervous about taking the case. It's a big case. But uh, they said, well, what can we do? So I said, we signed as uh, attorneys representing them. And one of the things that I had suggested, and I want to make clear, I didn't actually found it. They did all the work. Uh, the plaintiffs did it. These are regular people who just, yeah, they care. I'm certainly supporting it. Obviously, I back it. But, uh, you know, they did the work. And what we did was when we first met, it was apparent that, you know, we can file suit. But even if we win in federal court, if we start, don't start doing something to try and help people to see that, you know, the narrative that's out there is not true, we're going to we're going to have trouble because we're still going to have 100 plus million Americans who've been lied to for six months that are terrified of a disease that's no worse than the yearly influenza. So said, hey, guys, you know, let's put this together as a group. Let's try and make this a political movement as well. Because first of all, political pressure is a good thing. We need that. And second of all, we need to help people to feel better. We help, need to help them to understand that what they're hearing is not true. They've intentionally been misled. So we put it together for that reason and unified a lot of Facebook groups on that and did a bunch of work behind that. And what you see now is Ohio Stands Up. So let me ask you about the suit itself. So what are the, uh, the kind of the legal merits of the case and explain your decision to do this in federal court as opposed to a state court? And, and uh, you know, what, what is the approach here as far as the orders like and how they're unconstitutional? Okay, so there's a lot there. As far as the federal over state court, 
ultimately, this is going to end up in federal court anyways. There's a number of strategies that went into it that I really can't go into, but you know, federal court seems to be the appropriate thing. We're challenging this on constitutional grounds, uh, U.S. constitutional grounds, and it really seemed to be the appropriate court to uh, me and Attorney Gargas. So we filed it there. The causes of action are, well, there's a, could be hundreds if we wanted to. Um, you know, we're challenging some of the various constitutional and federal law violations that have occurred in the state's response to coronavirus. Uh, but we're actually, and kind of the real big thing that's happening here is we're challenging the emergency declaration itself. Uh, an emergency declaration can be challenged and it, you know, the duration of this declaration is really unprecedented in a lot of ways given the, the reaction that's been that's occurred. So we're, we're challenging that declaration itself. We believe that the science doesn't support an actual declaration of emergency and certainly doesn't support an ongoing emergency forever. You know, what the CDC and the ODH and all these different groups have done is they've taken uh, SARS-CoV-2, which is a true virus, it's a real thing, uh, and they've taken the disease that manifests from it, which is COVID-19, and they've just lumped it together with a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, the flu, pneumonia, all these different diseases. And they don't actually have a test that works for SARS-CoV-2. Uh, the PCR test that is the supposed gold standard is absolute nonsense. We've detailed that in great detail in case and elsewhere. It just simply doesn't work. And yeah, the case count is nonsense as a result of that. I mean, we don't really know how many cases we have or have had. It's all, it's, it's never actually even been defined by the CDC. So that's nonsense. Uh, the number of deaths that they report is with COVID, not from COVID. We don't have an accurate death count of people who have actually died from COVID. And essentially this whole thing's been built on lies. So what we're doing is challenging the premise. We're saying, okay, you keep telling us that you've got all this science that supports what you're doing, that support this emergency declaration, that support all these different things. Let's see it. Where's it at? And you know, the thing about it is, is if you have it, why haven't you shared it with the public to this point? Why do you keep putting out misleading nonsense data? You know, why haven't you just shared the actual raw data and let us let us do some analysis on it? Let us see your models. You know, we started out, we had all these models that were so ridiculously wrong. Now they're not showing the models. They're not showing the data. And so, you know, let's see it. If you don't have anything to hide, why are you hiding it? So we'll, we'll look at the data and we're going to use that and we're going to challenge the premise. We're going to challenge that there's actually an emergency that, you know, a declaration is going to do anything for. And we have all sorts of statements from the, uh, the, the brilliant Dr. Fauci and other such people in which they've you know, recognized that this disease is with us. It's not going anywhere. It's going to be here forever. We've already flattened the curve. So why is there still an emergency? Speaking of show us the data, so I understand from looking at the site, you are now in the discovery portion of the trial where you're attempting to get some of that data and, and see some of the documents that they have that they're hiding. We're just getting there and I cannot wait for discovery. 
So we have a couple more documents to file with the court. Those will be filed before October 1st. And then we do what's called a discovery conference, which means uh, we, the lawyers, sit down with the lawyers from the other side and say, here's what we need to see. Here's what we need to do. And then, you know, inevitably we bicker a little bit about what, whether or not it's relevant and whether or not we need to see it. But I don't really think there's much of an argument to be made here. What we need to see is the data and we need to be able to depose the relevant people and find out why they're doing what they're doing under oath and what precisely they're attempting to do under oath and you see what the, if that meshes with the data. I mean, the data is what it is. And if their data and their models justify what they're doing, they should have no problem doing any of this. So I'm hoping that we'll get have a nice, clean, easy discovery where they just share everything with us and they don't argue about hiding anything because there'd really be no reason to do it unless they have something to hide. We have heard Governor DeWine make comments such as kids wearing masks in school, that this needs to be the new normal. And it's interesting because in the Pennsylvania suit that, that won in federal court over there, the judge, in his uh, in his opinion, had, had written uh, that one of the reasons he thought it was unconstitutional is that there was no way out, that that the state had not shown this to be a temporary measure, and they had wanted it to be, quote, a new normal. And that's kind of what we're hearing in Ohio. Is, is there, Do you feel there's a lot of similarities there that's one, the, one of the things you have going for you in that DeWine has made these comments to make it sound like there is no temporary part of this measure that he wants it to be uh, kind of a permanent thing? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how these guys believe that they can make a new normal. There's an amendment process to the Constitution. If you want to amend the Constitution, go ahead. If you want this to be the new normal, go ahead and amend the Constitution. This is not something that you can do under an emergency declaration by fiat forever. I, I just have no idea how a former attorney general of the state of Ohio, an attorney, a guy who in theory understands what the Constitution says and means, could ever think that he could just do this forever at will. You know, this is just mind blowing. And the worst part about it is not only is it totally and completely unconstitutional on every level, it's really unethical. I mean, what he's done to discriminate and to torture seniors who are locked away in nursing homes like animals in a cage, uh, what he's done to kids to create fear, to make them wear masks, I don't know how he sleeps at night. Yeah, he's not saving lives. He's ruining lives. And I just do not understand that. You know, one of the issues that I saw, I know you touched, this was touched on on OhioStandsUp.org as well. Uh, it, one of the things that, that leaked out was the uh, the quarantine order that actually originated in March and then the second amended order. But it was funny hearing Governor DeWine explain that it's, well, this is voluntary. Nobody's doing it against their will. But it very specifically says in in the literature that uh, the health director has the discretion to do this at, at their call. So it's like it, they you say it's voluntary, but nobody voluntarily goes away from their family. Right. You know, eventually the state's going to stay. Well, you have to do it. it it's just I, I kind of was amused at that explanation that it was voluntary. I don't know. The problem is, is that DeWine's put out so much stuff. Sometimes I think he doesn't even read it. His people just put it out and he says whatever. Uh, you know, he's done so much nonsense on this. The idea that they're going to set up FEMA camps and send people there, that's absurd. I mean, that was we talked about that a bit in uh, one of the press releases. 
that that's just absolutely beyond the scope. Yeah, so I don't I don't know what he's thinking or, or doing with that. And why in God's name do you need quarantined over this? No one under the age of 65 is dying from this. No one. I mean, why do we need to quarantine? If you're 70 years old, 80 years old, have comorbidities or at risk, stay home. Be careful. I support you doing that. You have every right to do that. If you want to go to the store and wear a mask, go ahead. If you want to do, you know, take protective measures, precautionary measures, that's your right. But why in God's name are we doing this? You know, last time I looked, which granted it's been a bit, but uh, we hadn't had a single child under the age of 19 die in Ohio. Have you looked at what we're doing to our kids in the schools? Yep. This is absurd. This is just insanity. These kids are going to grow up germaphobes, terrified of people. Ter- I mean, I don't even want to consider what the psychological impacts of what we're doing are going to be on this generation. Not to mention that they're now behind in school. What he's doing to minority populations that are already in a disadvantaged position and the count on school for you know school lunches and all these different things. I do not understand it. What I really don't understand is why there's not more outrage from both parties, because whether it's the minority populations that are tend to be uh, strongly D that are being abused by this, whether it's, uh, you know, the right wing people who don't believe that masks and all these things are within the right of the governor, th- there should be no D's or R's in the country that support this. It's not justified. Yet both parties are just quietly going along. I don't understand that. So let me ask you this. Uh, so obviously we, we, we go back to this being in federal court. What not only would this obviously apply to the law and the orders in Ohio as it's written, uh, but it could also have overreaching effects in, in the entire country. So explain what a, a positive result here in this case would do for everybody else that's listening that may not be in Ohio. Yeah, a lot, a lot. So we're testing the science on this. I mean, that's certainly something that's in the courts. Uh, it's a big part of the case. A lot of the times the, the courts want to look at these things as political questions or kind of outside the scope of the court. Unfortunately, in this case, we don't have a choice but to bring that fr- uh, to the forefront. And luckily, it, it's really not that complicated uh, when we want to boil it down. Okay, so... Our, our premise is based on a few different things. I mean, we talk about the fact that the tests don't work. We talk about the fact that, you know, if you want to look at the overall danger of a disease, probably the best way to look at it is its impact uh, in terms of case fatality rates and reproduction rate, because if it doesn't spread fast or if it doesn't really kill anybody, then how dangerous is it? And we compare it to some other diseases. So, you know, testing the science is a big deal on this. Uh, the other thing is we're, we're checking the constitutionality of this. And a precedent here certainly is a precedent that can be uh, used elsewhere in other courts. If it's appealed uh, to the Sixth Circuit or even to the Supreme Court, you know, that precedent could be nation, national. Uh, obviously, if the Supreme Court sets a precedent, then Uh, It applies all over the country, which would mean that unless another state has a very good reason for an emergency declaration, they would pretty much have to shut it down. So, you know, a Supreme Court ruling on this could shut down emergency orders all over the country in the best case scenario. Uh, But at minimum, what this does is this allows us to create 
both some science and some legal work that can be used anywhere in the country. Uh, as we as this case continues to develop, it's been very, very time consuming and expensive to develop this. But the the great part is, is once it's done, it's done, then it's easier to reuse elsewhere. So we're hoping that we can actually use this to free our entire country. We're not quite ready to use it all over the country yet. Um, but we are working towards getting it ready to do that. And uh, you know, the case itself could be used anywhere. It's just, as we, as we continue to develop the data, it'll be easier to use elsewhere and much less expensive to deal with. So people that live outside of Ohio, what would you uh, tell them for the ones that feel helpless in other states and other jurisdictions? Like, what would you advise they do if they want to feel like they can be a part of this movement and, and maybe do something to help? What would you say to them uh, to go do and in, in, in wherever they live? So I'm really glad you asked that. I'm actually working on and should have within the next week or so a document out that's addressing specifically that. Um, we're partnering also with Make America Free Again, and they're going to be helping us to get this word out nationally. Um, we're going to be taking a number of steps to help people to feel like they can start taking control of their destiny. People can fight this. So you got to understand something. I'm just a regular guy from you know, a little town in Ohio. I'm nothing special. I'm fighting this. Now, granted, you know, I got that JD, so I'm fighting it in the courts and not everybody can do that. But everybody can do something. You can, you can learn, you can read, you can research. You know, the information in our case, it's all from the CDC. It's all from the government sources. We had to do it that way to ensure that we could, uh, you know, win this in court. So read it, use it, educate people. The CDC is the one who made the case for us. We didn't have to do the case. We just used their information. So share that information, get people talking, help raise awareness. You have no idea what kind of an impact one person can make when they start reaching out to other people and letting them know about the truth. Now, I'll tell you, we got to be understanding about this. Uh, as people who are, are terrified and completely shut down, it won't do any good to, tell, uh, to try and convince them. Some people you're just going to have to write off. But for people who aren't too sure, if you can educate them and show them and let them come to their own conclusion that you know they've essentially been defrauded, those people will become activists. They'll share the news. And the farther this news gets spread, the more political clout we have, the more likely that we see these actions shut down, maybe even before we get through all the court stuff. Now, we still need to get through the court stuff because we need some precedent in federal court that says this can't happen again in the future. But we'll take political victories anytime we can get them. And the best way for that to happen is for people to organize, to create you know, organizations and associations and, and do what we're doing in Ohio. And, you know, I'm working with people in California and all sorts of places. You know, we're trying to help people to get this stuff organized everywhere. But be active. Educate yourself and educate others. Be polite. There's no reason to call people an idiot. Uh, it's First of all, it's not true. There's brilliant people that have been sucked in on this and believe it. And second of all, it won't do any good. No one's going to listen to you once you tell them that. So be polite. 
educate them from a positive spot, not a negative spot. And, you know, get the word out. Attorney Tom Renz, he is fighting the good fight in Ohio. Federal case, we are awaiting the results of that as it goes through uh, the process, and hopefully we will have a positive result. You can support the effort by visiting ohiostandsup.org. You can pledge your support financially. You can pledge to be a volunteer. Many other ways. Simply spread the word, ohiostandsup.org. Mr. Renz, it is a pleasure. Thank you for taking your time out of your very busy schedule. Uh, I'm sure the people will appreciate hearing your perspective on this. Honored to be here, and thank you, and thank you to all the supporters we're getting everywhere. We're truly honored to serve. Like a magician, the flu disappeared from the Southern Hemisphere this summer, their winter. Poof, gone. A magician never shares its secrets, but that hasn't stopped experts, including the CDC, from trying to give away the secret, but it's a bunk baloney excuse. It's garbage. They're trying to say it was mitigation that killed off the flu in the Southern Hemisphere. It just never came. You think about if you're a Eurotrip fan, the old Eurotrip movie back in the 90s, when one of the guys is lamenting, they, they wound up on a gay nude beach. And he's like, the girls never came. They never came. Well, the flu never came. It just never showed up in the Southern Hemisphere. The reason given by the pundits is, well, guess what? Your masks, your lockdowns, your washing hands, your physical distancing, all of that apparently killed off the flu. Now, let's just look at this common, common sense approach because there are some that are just eating this up like the gullible sheep that they are. But if all of this were true and we found out that suddenly... All of these mitigation strategies work after all these years. I mean, it was that simple. Wouldn't this be headline news? Wouldn't we be hearing about it at the 11 p.m. update of every newscast in America? Wouldn't it be front page news above the fold, right? You know, headline, big headlines. We have a cure for the flu. We can kill off the flu by social distancing and washing your hands, and masks. How did we not know this for 50 years, 80 years of mask wearing? You can't tell me it wasn't studied. Who has said that lockdowns don't work? They said it in 2006, a working group found, studying the issue, that mass quarantine and isolation, isolation of mass groups of people, large groups of people, has never been shown to be effective in preventing spread of the flu on any scale, in any situation. That was the 2006 working group by the World Health Organization saying that. They've never been able to find it. So how is it that they were never able to find a situation where a lockdown was effective and suddenly it was effective? But it wasn't just effective on the flu. It was ineffective on COVID-19. Because these measures did not make COVID-19 go away in the Southern Hemisphere, but supposedly they kept the flu at bay. That's the official word, right? That's, that's what they're going with. And that's why the governors right now are pushing the masks. Some of them are still pushing the lockdowns. They're trying to condition you to give in, to cede control with the emergency orders for flu season 
Because they want you to believe that it kept the flu away in the Southern Hemisphere so that they can keep these powers indefinitely. So even if COVID does not show up again later this year, which it might not, because of all the reasons we've discussed, seasonality, herd immunity, T-cell resistance, all those factors could be keeping it away. But they want you to believe as long as they have the authority, the emergency powers, that they're keeping it away. And this was bunk, and I knew it was bunk. It didn't pass the smell test with me. So I wanted to prove it. And when I say prove, I acknowledge that the conclusive term, the conclusive usage of the word prove probably doesn't apply here. I can't prove it, but I can issue and give you strong evidence that what they're saying is not true. I took the last three flu seasons, weeks 7 through 17 on the calendar. I compared hospitalization rates of confirmed flu hospitalizations through the EIP program by the CDC on a per 100,000 basis. I compared them to the 2020 flu season. I also took percent positive of all flu testing in those weeks by the CDC clinical labs. Those are clinical labs around the United States reporting back to the CDC. When you look at weeks 7 to 17, the hospitalization rates for 2020 was almost identical, were almost identical to the previous three seasons up to about 7 to 10. Now, in weeks 7, 8, 9, 10, 2020 flu season started going down a little bit faster than the others. But then by week 10, boom, pow, week 20 fell off a cliff. Just completely, flu disappeared this year in 2020 by week, calendar week 10. Started going off a cliff. Now, I can tell you this. The lockdowns in the United States did not start. The first three lockdowns, Alaska, Colorado, California, took effect at the very end of week 12, 25 states began in week 13. Another 17 began in week 14, okay? Not only did the lockdowns not start really until week 13, but remember it takes a couple of weeks before you'll show up in the results because the epic curves don't instantly work. You can't start wearing masks or go into lockdowns and then expect two days later, oh, yep, look, the rates just fell. You know, the positive test just completely stopped. It doesn't work that way. It's like a moving train. You know, you're not going to take a 60-mile-per-hour locomotive. It's not just going to be able to put on the brakes and then all of a sudden stop. It, it needs several thousand feet to really get the momentum slowed down before it can come to a stop. And the flu season was not going to disappear overnight. So even if the lockdowns had any effect on the flu... It wasn't going to show in week 12 or week 13. It was going to show, start showing up a couple weeks later. But by that time, remember, by weeks 15, 16, and 17, the flu had disappeared in 2020, both in terms of hospitalizations and positive flu tests. So I want to go a step further, and I didn't just eyeball this. I actually ran correlation. I ran correlation on week 20 for positive flu test, percent of positive flu tests, I ran it against estimated infections by week 
for COVID-19. Because my theory is that it was not the mitigation that killed off the flu, but actually the emergence and the onset of COVID-19. Because there is a predominant virus theory out there where just like the flu can kill off minor cold viruses, a major virus can come and kill off the flu. There, it's a theory. It's not perfectly tested. But it is something that has scientific validity to it. Or at least it's theorized to be such. So I tested the number of infections of COVID-19 by week. I used COVID19-projections.com starting with week seven, and I ran a correlation to the 2020 flu season of positive flu tests. I got a 0.83 correlation, which is 0.7 R squared. So when you square 0.83, 0.83, you get 0.7. That's a really strong relationship. And I did it because some people will say, well, you know, the flu was disappearing because it's the end of flu season. But I ran the same test I ran the infections by week to the previous three flu seasons, and none of them were more than 0.4 correlation as opposed to 0.83. So there was some previous correlation just because the flu was started to go down, but it did not correlate anything like what we saw in 2020. Yes, it's true. Correlation doesn't equal causation, but sometimes it does. Sometimes it does. And you can't look at something with such a strong relationship and say it doesn't matter. Because I can tell you, with something that strong a relationship, it means it is a very highly influential variable. It may not be the only variable. We can rule out lockdowns. We know the lockdowns did not kill off the flu. They couldn't have because the, the mass rapid decline had already begun before lockdowns. So, did masks cause it? Probably not. In the United States, we started hearing about mask wearing a little bit in March, but remember the guidance at that point was do not wear a mask. So most people were not wearing masks at that point. So we can rule out masks, right? The mask did not save the flu here in the United States. Now we were hearing a little bit in early March about physical distancing and washing your hands. Okay. So here is the dilemma for the lockdown crowd for the panic porn. For the fear mongers, for the Corona bros, the Karens, here is the dilemma. Okay, at this point, if we say that physical distancing did work and that we started physical distancing and washing our hands early enough for this to have taken effect and had an impact, which, by the way, it didn't, but let's just argue for a, a second that it did, then that means this worked for the flu which was already here in the middle of flu season, but it didn't stop COVID-19 from ramping up immediately. So we're left with this dilemma, or they are, I'm not, but they are left with an intellectual inconsistent argument because they want to prove that distancing and washing your hands stopped the flu dead in its tracks in order to prove that the flu didn't show up later in the Southern Hemisphere. So we're left with the possibility, okay, maybe distancing and washing your hands stopped the flu, but it clearly didn't stop COVID-19. So why then are we continuing with the charade that it does? Because you just proved by arguing, you went down this road, 
you dug a line in the sand. You, you, you dug a hole in, you dug your own trench and you stepped in it. And you said, this is my position and I'm going to fight to the bitter end. And we were able to conclusively show it wasn't lockdowns, it wasn't masks. Okay, maybe it was physical distancing, even though up until the second or third week in March, we were still selling out sports arenas and concerts in the United States. It was week 13 when the NBA, March 14th, when the NBA canceled its season. By then, though, we, you know, for another week or two, we were still seeing a lot of concerts around the country. We were still going to grocery stores. It's not like when the NBA season stopped that everything else stopped. Okay. In the United States, we were still pretty busy. So it probably was not social distancing or washing your hands, but this is the dilemma because if you say that it was, then that means, yeah, okay, maybe it stopped the flu, but why isn't that headline news? If it really did, that's our, that's our story. We can get rid of the flu by social distancing and washing our hands. But we know that's not true. And that's why it's not the lead story on every news outlet in the country, because that's not real. So what I think here is that we have shown that the flu was probably killed off by the virus itself. And not by, certainly not by mask or lockdowns here in the United States, because we can prove in February and March, the flu was already going away. So that's not what stopped it. Social distancing and washing hands maybe had a small impact, but it was already happening before those things started in full. Remember, I, I can only speak for Columbus, Ohio, but I know the second week of March in Columbus, Ohio, almost nobody was distancing, and maybe people were washing their hands and, and trying not to touch their face as much, but <laughs> people were going about their lives normally. So that did not kill the flu. I promise it didn't. So what we're left with is the virus probably killed the flu by its arrival. But the governors and all the public health experts, they know the truth on this. They know what the science is. And that's why nobody's picking up and acting like we just cured the flu all of a sudden. Because we wouldn't need vaccines if we knew social distancing and washing our hands were doing the trick. They wouldn't be pushing the flu vaccine if that were the the truth. Because that's the miracle cure, right? We wouldn't need the vaccines. But the governors know this, and they're pushing the flu. They know the flu is probably not going to show up this season because of COVID-19. Or if it does, it'll be light. But they're going to push this as lockdowns and masks killed off both the flu and COVID-19. Beware, it's coming. Don't say I didn't warn you. Beyond the Fold podcast, thank you for listening. We are on all of your favorite podcasting platforms. We try to come out with a show at least once a week. We're on Apple iTunes iHeartRadio, Spotify, uh, hopefully soon on Amazon. Amazon Podcasts have an invitation. I'm going to try to get it up on there. Uh, But we're on most of your podcast platforms. Give us a listen. Find me on Twitter at KYLAM8. Make sure you check out rationalground.com for all the latest news, research, studies, uh, editorials, newsletters, everything we can possibly put on there, data, RationalGround.com is the place to check out to keep up with all your truthful, authentic COVID-19 data and research. Thanks for giving me a listen, everybody. Have a great one.